Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Sheldon, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our April 2013 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. The Affordable Care Act is going to impact the practice of psychiatry as the number of insured Americans increases. Insurance companies are now required to provide coverage for children and adults with pre-existing conditions, eliminate dollar limits for lifetime coverage, and provide free preventive services. Dr. Michael Ebert assembled a panel of experts to discuss psychiatric care with a focus on prevention and patient-centered medical homes, emphasis on coordinated care teams and new technologies, and changes in physician payment and research funding. As changes in health care laws and coverage continue through 2014, this commentary can help you understand the changing field and be prepared to make decisions regarding your patients and your practice. Levomil Nasopran SR, an antidepressant candidate with a sustained released formulation, is a potent serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor that, unlike other drugs in this class, is more selective for reuptake inhibition of norepinephrine than serotonin. However, it is not known whether this difference may offer treatment benefits in major depressive disorder. Montgomery and colleagues conducted a study supported by Forrest to examine the safety and efficacy of levomilnasopran SR. The 10-week, double-blind, placebo-controlled study included adults with moderate to severe MDD. The target dose was 100 mg per day, but patients could take a 75 mg dose if this was more easily tolerated. Improvement in depressive symptoms was measured by the Montgomery-Asberg Depression Rating Scale and Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. While improvement in depression-related work, social, and family life impairment was measured by the Sheehan Disability Scale. Safety and tolerability were assessed through reports of adverse events and changes in lab measurements and vital signs. Large treatment effects were found in favor of levomilnasopran SR on both the depression rating scales, indicating that improvements were statistically significant and clinically meaningful. Change on the Sheehan Disability Scale was significantly different for levomilnasopran SR versus placebo, with improvements seen across the work, social, and family life domains of functional impairment. Levomilnasopran SR was generally well tolerated. You may access the full text of this article free via the April Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Researchers have speculated that pregnancy and the postpartum period may be an especially vulnerable period for the development of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Although pregnant and postpartum women are thought to be at greater risk of obsessive-compulsive disorder, so far the evidence has been inconclusive. 
For this reason, the authors of this study conducted a meta-analysis of 29 studies in which they synthesized estimates of obsessive-compulsive disorder prevalence in pregnant, postpartum, and control samples. Obsessive-compulsive disorder prevalence was found to be lowest in the general population, followed by pregnant and postpartum women. The risk analysis revealed that pregnant or postpartum women are approximately one and a half to two times more likely to experience obsessive-compulsive disorder compared to the general population. These findings, the authors conclude, highlight the need for routine prenatal screenings to extend beyond depression in pregnancy and the postpartum period. They assert that identifying the presence of clinically significant obsessive-compulsive symptoms is especially important, as untreated obsessive-compulsive disorder in a caregiver can have complex and adverse effects on the physical and emotional well-being of the entire family. Depression in pregnancy occurs in about 10% of women, and decisions to treat can be complicated for the mother and clinician, as many women would like to avoid taking medication during pregnancy. The American Psychiatric Association and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology recommend psychotherapy for treating mild or moderate depression in pregnant women. Decisions for treatment must be personalized to each woman and her illness. Spinelli and colleagues tested the benefit of two modalities of psychotherapy in a diverse sample of African-American, Hispanic, and white pregnant depressed women from three New York City sites. They compared interpersonal psychotherapy for depression in pregnancy to a parenting education program control over 12 weeks in a sample of 142 English and Spanish-speaking women. The control group received individual, therapist-led 45-minute weekly educational sessions. The participants met DSM-4 criteria for major depressive disorder. The Hamilton Rating Scale for depression was used to measure depressive symptoms. Both interpersonal psychotherapy and the parenting education program showed equal benefit in decreasing depressive symptoms during pregnancy. This study supports the recommendation to use interpersonal psychotherapy for mild to moderate major depression in pregnancy. The parenting education program may be an alternative treatment that could be administered by paraprofessionals in large urban prenatal clinics. Women who are depressed while pregnant face tough choices in how to best treat their depression. Some studies have shown that taking antidepressants increases the risk of harming the fetus. Psychosocial interventions are effective, but they are often time-consuming and sometimes insufficient for women with severe illness. Yet treatment in some form is essential, as numerous studies have reported many potential consequences of depression on both the mother and infant. This issue of the journal presents three reviews and meta-analyses by Dr. Gregoriadis and colleagues whose extensive work provides a stronger evidence base to help facilitate the decision-making process. 
They received funding for their research from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Ontario Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. In this first of three articles, the authors examine the literature to determine whether antenatal antidepressant use is associated with congenital malformations and to determine the effect of known methodological limitations on the risk estimates. Their primary analyses were based on the 19 studies that were rated as being above quality threshold according to a quality assessment tool the authors developed. Their results showed that antidepressants do not seem to be associated with an increased risk for congenital malformations in general. The risk for major malformations was also not significant in their primary analysis. Although they identified a statistically significant association between cardiovascular malformations and exposure to any antidepressant during pregnancy, the magnitude of the finding was small, and the authors question its clinical significance. In their second of three articles on antidepressant use in pregnant women, Dr. Gregoriadis and colleagues report on the neonatal risks faced by the infant when exposed to antidepressant medication before birth. In this study, they focused on poor neonatal adaptation syndrome, which has been described as a condition marked by transient short-term adverse neonatal or neurobehavioral effects in the neonate. Although the mechanism of poor neonatal adaptation syndrome is not completely understood, it most likely represents a withdrawal or discontinuation syndrome or is secondary to serotonin toxicity. Symptoms can include respiratory distress, tremors, irritability, sleep disturbances, weak or absent cry, hypoglycemia, and seizures. The syndrome has been seen in up to 30% of infants that have had serotonergic antidepressant exposure before birth. The authors conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis of the literature. Twelve studies were retrieved in which Poor neonatal adaptation syndrome, or signs of respiratory distress and tremors in the infant, were examined. The study received funding from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Ontario Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. The results showed that antidepressant exposure during pregnancy was significantly associated with poor neonatal adaptation syndrome, as well as with respiratory distress or tremors. For the respiratory signs, studies using convenience samples had significantly higher odds ratios, but no significant differences were found in any other moderator analyses. In their third of three articles on antidepressant use in pregnant women, Dr. Gregoriadis and colleagues investigate whether maternal depression during pregnancy is associated with adverse perinatal and infant outcomes. The systematic review and meta-analysis they conducted included 30 studies, which represent a distillation of over 3,000 abstracts yielded by their initial database search. 
The study received funding from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Ontario Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. The authors found that premature delivery and decrease in breastfeeding initiation were significantly associated with maternal depression, although in both cases the odds ratios were relatively small. Other factors such as low birth weight, neonatal intensive care unit admissions, and preeclampsia were not significantly associated with depression. Gestational age and APGAR scores at one and five minutes were not significantly associated with depression. The authors conclude that while depression did not appear to affect all perinatal outcomes, the effects of it were not without consequence. They assert that more methodologically rigorous research is clearly needed to bring more light to this vexing and controversial issue. About 1% of the general population receives oral glucocorticoids at any point in time, and these drugs are well known for their adverse effects. Glucocorticoid-induced neuropsychiatric disorders are among the most frequent adverse events observed in people exposed to systemic glucocorticoids. They occur mainly within the first weeks of exposure, but some of them may also occur after long-term therapy is discontinued. Analyses of real-time clinical data from almost 22,000 adults exposed to long-term glucocorticoids in UK family practice and who had discontinued the drug after an exposure ranging from one to three years suggested that the risk of both depression and delirium or confusion was increased during the withdrawal period that is, a two-month period surrounding the supposed end date of the treatment. There was no increased risk for mania, panic disorders, or suicidal events. Patients exposed to long-acting glucocorticoids, for example dexamethasone, were more likely to suffer from withdrawal-induced depression or delirium and confusion than those exposed to short-acting drugs such as prednisone or prednisolone. The elderly were also at higher risk for delirium or confusion upon glucocorticoid withdrawal. Previous reports suggest that depression or delirium symptoms occurring when glucocorticoid therapy is discontinued may be due to underlying HPA axis suppression. The authors suggest that this etiology needs to be ruled out in people diagnosed with neuropsychiatric disorders during the weeks following glucocorticoid therapy discontinuation. The prevalence of type 2 diabetes mellitus has been reported as two to four times higher in people with schizophrenia than the general population and across different ethnic groups. However, it is unknown why there is such a higher rate of type 2 diabetes in schizophrenic patients. The reasons are likely to be multifactorial, including induction by antipsychotic drugs as well as genetic variants. One recent hypothesis proposed shared genetic risk variants between schizophrenia and diabetes, which means that the same DNA sequence may cause both diseases.
Recent studies have shown that insulin-like growth factor 2 messenger RNA binding protein 2 gene, referred to here as IGF2BP2, plays an important role in the insulin function. Genetic studies have suggested a specific role of IGF2BP2 in the development of type 2 diabetes. Recently, one important single nucleotide polymorphism, the RS4402960 polymorphism, was found to be associated with its predisposition to type 2 diabetes by several genetic studies. The authors of this study hypothesized that IGF2BP2 is a potential candidate gene contributing to the comorbidity between schizophrenia and type 2 diabetes. To test their hypothesis, the authors conducted a study in which they genotyped the RS4402960 polymorphism in 790 chronic schizophrenic patients and 1,083 unrelated healthy controls. The study received funding, support from the Chinese government, Jilin University, Veterans Affairs, the NIH, and the Stanley Medical Research Institute. IGF-2-BP2 gene expression levels were assayed in 34 patients with chronic schizophrenia and 30 healthy controls. The results showed that the RS4402960 polymorphism was associated with vulnerability to schizophrenia. Furthermore, the IGF2BP2 expression levels were significantly greater in schizophrenia. The authors conclude that the IGF2BP2 gene may play a role in susceptibility to schizophrenia. This month's ASCP Corner focuses on recent developments in the use of D-cycloserin during exposure therapy for anxiety disorders such as PTSD. The theory behind this is that D-cycloserin speeds up the fear extinction learning that takes place during exposure sessions and could therefore decrease the number of sessions needed. Although there are many unanswered questions about the use of D-cycloserin in exposure therapy, the findings so far point to efficacy and minimal side effects. However, the authors emphasize that in order to use this approach, a clinician should have either a thorough knowledge of exposure-based approaches or a close working relationship with another clinician who does. They hope that D-cycloserin will eventually facilitate not only exposure sessions, but also the wider use of exposure therapy itself. This month we feature a case report you'll not want to miss on atypical antipsychotic-induced sleepwalking in a bipolar patient in relation not to just one atypical antipsychotic, but as a recurrent experience with use of different drugs in this class, namely olanzapine, quetiapine, and the new atypical antipsychotic, acenapine. In closing, be sure to visit us online for book reviews, interactive activities from our CME Institute, and much, much more from the April issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening.
This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. <laughs>